You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Nothing saddens me more than to hear someone say they don't enjoy reading or that they find books boring, and I'll admit to wondering about friends and acquaintances whose homes are void of books. I often think of the Roman philosopher Marcus Tullius Cicero, who once wrote, A room without books is like a body without a soul. For the past five years, Christian Humanist Profiles has sought to introduce you to authors, books, and artists to strengthen your soul. I'm Jay Eldred, your host for today, and joining me is Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, author of the new book, On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Dr. Pryor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Would you introduce yourself? Um, I know that some of our listeners might might not be familiar with you or your other work, and then uh, tell us a little bit about the the book you've written. Sure. Well, um, I am an English professor at Liberty University. I am teaching my 20th year there, so I've been here for a while. Uh, I'm the author of three books, including the one we'll be talking about today. The first one is Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, which is another book about books. It's a literary and spiritual memoir about how my love of books brought me into a deeper love of God. And I wrote a biography of the 18th century to 19th century British abolitionist poet and reformer Hannah Moore called Fierce Convictions. And then, of course, the book we'll be talking about today is on reading well, finding the good life through great books. And I write a lot of essays for publications like Christianity Today, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. Uh, So you can find me out there and about writing, sharing all of my opinions on all kinds of matters, but particularly um, cultural, political matters along with literature. Good book. Great. Um the the book you've written on reading well I, it focuses on the classical virtues could you give us a brief overview of what those are sure there actually there are lots of different lists of virtues and that was one of the the, the struggles i had in writing this book is figuring out which list to go by which virtues to to choose and i ended up um selecting 12 of probably the most known virtues um the four that seem to be agreed upon by most scholars, theologians, and philosophers from antiquity are the cardinal virtues, and those are prudence, temperance, justice, and courage. And then I chose the what are called the three theological virtues, which are fundamental to the Christian faith, faith, hope, and love. And then there is a set of Christian or heavenly virtues that are also important in the Christian tradition. And uh, there are seven of those, but two of them are the cardinal virtues. So the five remaining that I cover are chastity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. Now, And there are lots more uh, virtues. There are intellectual virtues, moral virtues, civic virtues. Um, So I could probably write several more books on this this subject, but this was how I started. So with so many to choose from, how did you narrow, narrow down your list? How did you choose which ones to include? And was there one in particular that you might have wanted to include but got cut? Um, yeah, there, I mean, part of it was picking ones that I thought were sort of some of the basic ones, like the cardinal ones are, are, are basic and you, 
They're fundamental to any understanding of virtue. And then the rest of it was kind of thinking about the works that I wanted to write about and finding a work that I could feel confident in covering in relationship to the virtue. And I think the list of, uh, of Christian virtues are, is probably my favorite one. Um, a couple that I didn't get to include were, um, uh, gratitude and, uh, and let's see, what was another, some of the, some of the intellectual virtues, um, like a love of, love of, of knowledge and, and their artistic virtues. So there, there were quite a few that I didn't get to cover. Um, but hopefully I'll write about them more someday. Well, having, having read your book, I would hope that you do. I would look forward to that very much. Oh, well, thank you. Um, why do you think we talk so little about virtue today? That's a really good question. I, and I think there are a few answers. One is that we don't even know what virtue is or what it means. I mean, I think we have the word virtue kind of flying around there, but mm-hmm. it's become sort of a, a prudish old fashioned term. Uh, it's, as I talk about in the book, it's even within Christian circles often, uh, or Victoria, in the Victorian age, virtue came to mean simply like a woman's virtue and in particular her sexual purity. And that's really narrowing down a word that has much broader definition and application. Um, and it, virtue actually just simply means excellence. It's like a human excellence is the characters or qualities that make human beings excel at being human. And the most interesting thing I found out about the virtues, uh, especially in studying Aristotle, is that he conceived of them as being the mean between two extremes, an extreme Mm -hmm. of deficiency and an extreme of excess. And we are a society that is not, we aren't prone to moderation or to the virtuous or golden mean, as Aristotle called it. We're very polarized, and we think that an excess of everything, if something is good, then more of it is better. But that's actually, even an excess of a virtue turns into a vice. And this goes against so much, I think, of what our culture is about. We're so divided, we're so polarized, we think more is better, that we've really forgotten what it means to find that golden mean, and to be moderate or reasonable in all things. The other thing that I think has led to our neglect of virtue today is that in order to even understand that there is such a thing as virtue, let alone what the virtues are, we have to actually understand that there is a purpose to that thing that we're talking about, and in, in this case, we're talking about human excellence. In order to understand what makes human beings excellent, we actually have to believe that human beings have a purpose or an end or a telos. Um, and we, that's part of the definition of living in a secularized age. We actually don't believe that there is, you know, a transcendent meaning or purpose for human life. And so if we don't, I mean, if you would just think of an example of if we, if uh, if someone from uh, another planet came here and saw a pair of scissors um, and they didn't know what they were for, they would have no way of knowing what con- if they're excellent or not if they don't know that they're supposed to cut. And the purpose of a scissors is determined, you know, the excellence is determined by how well it fulfills its purpose. So if we have no belief in 
human purpose or human meaning, meaning, then it's awfully hard to determine what makes us excellent. So we've lost that, and therefore we've lost our sense of the virtues. So speaking of, of excellence, uh, one of the books that you, that you cover is uh, The Great Gatsby, which happens to be one of my favorite pieces of American literature. And in that, Jay Gatsby is the epitome of success. He is the ideal jazz age man, but he's lacking something. What might we take away from, from Gatsby and his friends? Yeah, well, this is a great example that we have in Gatsby of this um, propensity towards excess and the idea that more is better because Gatsby has accumulated wealth and, uh, and success to an extreme. Um, as, you know, as you, as you pointed out, he is very successful, but he, in, in pursuing these things, he has not tempered, he has not moderated. And so he has lost the things that come when you do apply temperance and moderation. I mean, we, we think of temperance, um, we apply it in a lot of ways. Aristotle meant it in terms of moderation of our physical appetites, not desiring something too much or too little. It's not just about total restraint or total self-denial, but it's about a healthy um, indulgence and desire of the appetites that make us human and that we all have. Uh, and Gatsby, Gatsby just takes that to an extreme. He takes his desire for material goods, for housing, for clothing, for companionship, for sex. He takes all those to an extreme. Um, and and in the end, of course, it, without giving too much away for anyone who hasn't read it, but, um, it destroys, destroys people's lives because he lacks temperance. So obviously the great Gatsby teaches us temperance through a negative example, um, which literature often does, uh, but it can t- still teach us virtue nevertheless, even if it's through a negative example. I had to laugh a bit when I got to the to the temperance chapter and I saw that you had chosen Gatsby for it because it also works <laughs> on the historical level with the temperance movement. And I just, yeah. I, I love it when it all works together like that. Had you planned that or was that just a happy coincidence? Well, I hadn't planned it, but when I sat down to write that chapter and really, you know, I mean, I, of course I read it, you know, years ago and um, knew about it being set in the the era of prohibition, but when I started to write about it, one of the things that I do actually throughout the book is to make connections between um, the, you know, the words and the etymology and the meaning behind the words, and so I did include a good deal of history of of prohibition and the temperance movement that, that led up to it, because that's actually an example of how the word became misused, because temp- the temperance movement was about complete restraint, not drinking alcohol at all, but the true sense of virtuous temperance isn't complete abstinence, but it's, you know, it's having rightly ordering our desires and not uh, desiring something good too much or too little. Right. It seemed, it seemed to me in reading that temperance played a theme in most of the virtues that you covered. Um, but again, not to give not to give too much away. Toward the end of your book, you say that the good life begins and ends with humility. So I'm wondering why you kind of chose humility to say that's where it begins, rather than temperance, where it seems like most of the virtues rely on a right ordering. Well, that's true. I think all of all of the virtues rely on a right ordering. Um, the strict definition of temperance 
although we do use it, you know, if we use it as a synonym for moderation, then it, um, it can mean more things. But when Aristotle used it, he was referring strictly to the animal appetites or our okay. physical appetite. So our desire for food and uh, drink and sex, all of which actually, they're not just desires that we have, but we have to, we have to um, satisfy them if we are to continue living or to continue the race. And so, um, so temperance in its strictest sense refers specifically to you know, the bodily desires, which okay. actually makes it different from all of the other virtues because the other virtues have much more to do with, you know, our, our character and our mind and our will, whereas with our physical appetites, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to satisfy them to some extent in order to survive. Right. Throughout the book, I was imagining uh, Dante's vision of purgatory with the sinners being punished not just for a lack of certain virtues, but for excess of those virtues. And that's kind of where I was pulling the temperance in from. Oh, yes. Um, and, and because if we, if, we, yes, if, if we lack them, that's not healthy either. I mean, we see that in, you know, in, in eating disorders or asceticism. Um, it's just, you know, in order to be human and to express our human, humanity, uh, we have to eat and drink a certain amount. And so to, to deny them too much to ourselves results in a vice of the, of deficiency. Okay. So then, um, what might, uh, Flannery O'Connor then teach us about humility? I know that you, you talk about one of her works in, in a specific chapter and you mention her throughout the, throughout the book several times. To my shame, it's one of the few authors that you talk about that I haven't read. So what might Flannery O'Connor have to teach us about humility? Well, you're, you've given me the opportunity to persuade you to read one of my favorite writers. So thank you very much. <laughs> Let's see if I can, how well I can do to be persuasive. Um, I really do love Flannery O'Connor. Um, she's most known for her short stories, um, although she's written novels and uh, letters and essays and so forth. Um, and it was hard to choose. I actually ended up writing about two uh, of her short stories, but really all of her works, I would say, um, almost every single one does deal with the issue of human pride, uh, which is the vice, and humility is the virtue that corrects human pride. And O'Connor was living, you know, in the mid-20th century as a Catholic in the Bible Belt uh, South and was rejected and felt alienated for many reasons, but that, that allowed her to see through the kind of cultural Christianity that pervaded her society. The kind she, she lived among people who had, for generations had considered themselves Christians and thought that if you're born into a Christian family, you are a Christian. And that actually can make it very difficult to recognize what true Christianity is and to recognize one's own need for grace. Um, and so O'Connor's stories are, are unusual because they're often, uh, they often include violence or they include people who are grotesque or odd or bizarre in, in different ways. But she uses all of these things to bring about this moment where grace is offered um, and sometimes received and sometimes not. And ultimately that, that is, in order to receive grace, we actually have to be humble. So Connor actually ends up humbling a lot of her characters in some 
bizarre ways. And in the case of Revelation, the story that I, I write about first in that chapter, um, it centers on a character named Ruby Turpin, who's very proud of herself and her husband. And she thinks that she's, she and he are better than everyone else around her. She's, uh, and, and it turns out that they're actually, they're not only farmers, but they're pig farmers. And she literally thinks that her pigs don't stink. <laughs> um, and so as she sits in this waiting room where her husband, incidentally, is getting uh, treatment for a leg that wound, which makes him lame. I mean, so many of the things in O'Connor's stories are resonant with biblical meaning. Uh, her husband is lame, like those in the Bible who needed Jesus' healing. And she gets violently struck in the head with a book by another woman in the waiting room and goes home and rails at God because of that indignity and uh, ends up just having this kind of supernatural vision where she realizes that um, when she goes to heaven, um, she, she will not be first in line, but she will be last, and that actually that's okay. That doesn't matter. And so it's a funny and sweet and important story that teaches the virtue of humility, which is really just understanding who we are um, on the basis of reality. And on the basis of reality, we are we are fallen human beings in need of God's grace. Um, and this is a delightful story that, that shows us that lesson in a whimsical way. Well, thank. I think that I will look her up. If I were to start reading some of her work, where might where might I begin? Well, I think Revelation is actually the the, the best one to begin with, and then another one of her uh, famous stories, which is most uh, I think typical of her, is A Good Man Is Hard to Find, uh, which again has a character who's very proud of herself and meets a violent end, but she actually does also receive redemption at the last moment um and it's it's a it's an odd story so uh those would be the two that i would begin with um good country people is another one again her stories are strange but the sort of the key to understanding them is to look for the this element of pride in the characters and then how they have the opportunity through being humbled to receive grace well thank you um, one one author you didn't have to convince me to read, but I ha- haven't read him yet, but his book is sitting at home right on my kitchen table, is Shosuku Endo and Silence. Um, what might he teach us about faith? Well, that's a very controversial novel for anyone who has followed it. Um, it was it, it, so It's from uh, the middle of the 20th century, but came back into some popularity because a couple of years ago a, a gorgeous and beautiful film was adaptation of the novel was made by Martin Scorsese of all people. It, 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 I definitely recommend the film for anyone who's interested in the story um, and of course reading the novel. Um, but it's a, it was a controversial novel because, and again, I, I try not to give too much away in the, in the, in the book. I, I do actually have to um, talk about the, the pivotal moment in the, in the, story, but um, it centers on a 17th century Jesuit priest um, who lives among, who's gone among the the Japanese in search of his his mentor, who they have heard has apostatized, and um, not only are these poor Christian villagers undergoing torture by the Japanese officials, which is all based on actual history, but the main character is faced with a situation 
where he is called upon by the government to betray Christ, but not in order to stop his own torture, but actually to prevent the other villagers from being tortured. And so it's an agonizing decision for him, and he believes that Christ gives him permission to do this, which ends up being, you know, that's, that's controversial because mm-hmm. some people are saying that the, the novel says that Jesus would, you know, encourage us to commit blasphemy and, and you know, is, did the priest do that or is he actually still a believer at the end? And those are, you know, those are interesting textual questions, the kinds of things that, you know, English majors could debate all day long. But what I try to, to talk about in this chapter is that reading a book like this doesn't need to be controversial. I mean, we don't need to ask you know, our salvation and our faith doesn't rest on how we interpret this book, but rather it does give us an opportunity um, to ask questions about our own faith, um, because the virtue of faith is, is one of those, you know, like, like uh, hope and love um, that are different from the others because they're supernatural virtues. We can really only possess them in the biblical sense when they are given to us by God supernaturally, and yet we can still practice and perfect and improve them. And so, put quite simply, faith is the virtue by which we excel in our dependence on God. And I think we that is something we all have to practice and improve on every day, every waking moment of every day, is becoming more and more dependent upon Him. And I think that in a very dramatic way, that's what the story shows, that we may not be um, living in the 17th century among people who are being tortured for their faith, although certainly many Christians are and have been. Um, but we still have to face that decision every day of how much we're going to depend on God rather than ourselves. Um, and I think that's a powerful takeaway from this novel. Well, I think all of the novels that you, that you discuss um, have some hard-hitting truth that's difficult for us to process. But... I, I imagine that was also one of the reasons why you wrote the book. Right. And I and I also want to point out that um that these virtues that I find in these novels and discuss are not those are not the only things in the, in these novels. I'm actually trying to model a way for readers, especially readers who might not be confident in their ability to do literary analysis, to um to to see how they they can approach not just these works but other works because mm-hmm. that's what makes these that what that's what makes great books so great is that there are many layers of of meaning and um and uh, riches that they bestow upon us and so I'm just giving like one single approach for each of these works and and in hopes that readers will be encouraged to read them and find even more because there's so much more there. Right. I didn't have to get very far into your book to have something hit me personally, and that was in the introduction where you wrote, the true worth of books is in their words and ideas, not their pristine pages. Um, I was reading that in our in my living room, and like a hundred books on my bookshelf behind me, I felt were staring down at me in silent judgment. <laughs> their, their covers are tattered and worn, and it's obvious that they've been read, but I am horrible at actually marking in the book because it feels like I'm doing something wrong i don't know why but i actually went back and i and i bought a pen or and a pencil specifically for writing in the book and i forced myself to make notes and underline and things like that um why would you suggest that readers read with a pen or pencil and why would you suggest they make marks in a book 
Well, first I want to say I feel so hugely successful <laughs> in persuading you of doing this. I mean, I think I think we I think most of us have this idea about books that they sh- the pages should not be written in simply because if we went to public school or we used books from the library that didn't you know none of those books belong to us. So so of course we don't have permission to write in them. So I think in our in many of our in our formative years we're we use and read a lot of books that we don't have permission to mark, and so somehow we think that when we own a book, we also shouldn't mark it. But I encourage that because, number one, um, I think it's a way of engaging with the author. I mean, the, every author, especially of a great book, is is participating in kind of a conversation with the writers and thinkers that influenced him or her before writing the book. And so when we mark in a book, we're kind of participating in that conversation to, to mark what we agree with, what we think is important or significant, maybe what we disagree with. And then when we go back and reread these books, which good books always are worthy of rereading, um, we actually can have a conversation with our previous self and, and, and see what we thought was important at one time and maybe see something that we overlooked. I think most people under, um, who read their Bibles uh, mark in their Bibles for similar reasons because we we want to engage with the text. And the other thing is just a simple is as simple as because if we are using a pen or pencil, we're actually focusing and paying attention more, and re- then we can remember more too. I think we remember more what we mark and underline and write in, and um, so it's just a, it's a key to help us retain information a little bit more. Um, you you just mentioned that in rereading we can have conversations with our past selves, and it occurs to me we could also have conversations with past owners of the books we've read if we've got if we've bought some at an estate sale or a library sale something like that, and we pick up a book someone else has written, and we can somewhat have a conversation with them too. I think that is actually very delightful. Um, I mean, sometimes we can get a book like that and it's been marked in too much or they've mm-hmm. made bad marks and it can be annoying. But when you get a book by someone who has done a good job marking, that is a really delightful thing. And uh, there's a great poem I mentioned in that introductory chapter by Billy Collins, a former poet laureate, um, who wrote, wrote a poem called Marginalia, where he talks about reading other people's writing in the, in the margins of books. And it, it, it he exposes the joy and delight that that is to, to do that. And it is a conversation. Um, okay. Um, of all the virtues that you talk about, what do you feel or which do you feel might be the hardest to obtain? Oh, wow. That is a good question. I mean, I think it's probably... Um, different for all of us. We probably all have different struggles. Um, I would say, um, I think, I think probably the hardest one for most people as, and, and by its very nature is perhaps justice. Um, justice is one of the virtues that, that's, I think it's the most complex virtue because justice refers not only to ourselves, like an individual, us as individuals um, who strive to be just or not just, but justice is also a virtue of a community. A community can be just or unjust. And, um, you know, in its most simple definition, justice is the mean or moderation between selfishness 
and selflessness. Um, and boy, is that hard. I mean, we are selfish in so many ways. I am anyway. Mm-hmm. And we can even sometimes think we can convince ourselves we're being selfless when we're actually being selfish. And then when we talk about, you know, justice in the community and how to how to be just to all people and all the competing interests, it's, it's very difficult. This is my hardest chapter to write. Um, because it's so political in nature and as well as being a, an individual personal virtue. Um, but justice is so, in, so important to everyone's flourishing because if there is injustice, then it affects everyone. If not immediately, then eventually. And that's, that's why I think A Tale of Two Cities was the perfect story to illustrate this, um, because, because it, it, centered on the French Revolution, which was, you know, a response to years and years of injustice perpetrated on the poor. And then what happened was that when the revolution took place, then the other side just simply wreaked its own injustices on its former oppressors. And it's so easy to overreact that way and to, to again, avoid that, that golden mean and to just respond in kind in the opposite direction. And that is not virtuous that's also a vice right with with justice itself being so political and then as we talked earlier with virtue itself being at best misunderstood how much did the politics of the last several years influence your writing about these virtues well, I, I'll be honest. Uh, when I set out set out to write this book initially, um, I didn't even have the virtues in mind as a framework. I was just going to write another book about books, and I had a different kind of outline in mind. Um, but in the past, um, you know, two or three years, as I was beginning to write the book and writing it, and um, it just seemed very evident to me that we need the virtues now more than ever. And so even though my original goal in writing this book was to just write about literature and help people fall in love with literature, um, which I still want, I realized that, you know, there there's more to literature than just, you know, the pleasures of reading, which are more than enough to do so. But I thought this is an opportunity to talk about virtue because we really need it in our culture. Both sides of every political aisle and both sides of every controversy, um, we all need it. And so, um, yes, this contemporary um, culture that we're in right now very much um, inspired me to to tackle the virtues along with these great books. Well, I must say that I appreciated the way that you addressed the political situation in the way that you just described, not necessarily calling out one side or another, I, I got the impression that you generally felt for people as individuals rather than political party. And I just, I enjoyed that. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that that came through to you because that was my desire. Great. Um, I know that with, with the politics of today, I see it online and whatnot, that we should just, you know, remember that we're people and we should all be, all be kind to each other. But, kindness isn't always being nice to one another could you could you go on about that or elaborate a little bit more about why kindness isn't always sure. nice sure i think this is might be one of that might be my favorite chapter or at least one of them um you know kindness of course is a virtue i think it's one we probably don't talk or think about very much because it's so simple and plain it's not as flashy as courage or as intellectual as prudence but 
Uh, kindness is just an ordinary, everyday, humble virtue that we really need more of. Um, but I think we, you know, we do use it synonymously oftentimes with nice, but kind is much tougher and deeper than nice. Um, I think nice is just being pleasing, but pleasing is not always the right thing to do. Um, so what I talk about in this chapter is how the word kind actually comes from the same word that we have in kin or family. And so to be kind is actually literally to treat others like family. And, you know, family are people hopefully that we love and we treat well, but we also, you know, sometimes we have to offer tough love or we have to be honest or we have to, you know, family, being with family is not all sunshine and roses. I mean, there can be hardship, there can be suffering, there can be um, brutal honesty, um, there's intimacy, there's uh, you know, the, the sharing of ourselves in private life that we don't share in public life. And so being kind is, is essentially treating others like family. And that involves a lot of self-sacrifice. Um, it involves not always being nice, but always being good and loving. So it's, you know, it's, it's really a habit that we would have of, of treating everyone as, as we would want our, our own family to be treated. At the end of your, I think it's at the end of your kindness chapter, you talk about a, a fear of death and ending. And I'd have to ask, after the events of the summer with the accident and everything, has that, has your view on that changed? Would you rewrite the end of that chapter? Anything like that? That's a really good question. Yeah, I do talk about my fear of dying and my fear of physical suffering. And I would say, um, you know, it's interesting because I had actually just turned in the last um, draft of this book before the accident happened where I was literally hit by a bus while walking. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was as though I had written this book about virtues where I talk about kindness and patience and humility. And all of a sudden I was called upon to actually exercise these virtues and to be confronted with the question, did I, do I actually believe what I just wrote? Um, and I do, um, but I didn't know I was going to be so tested so extremely on it. But I would still say that, that these things do scare me, but having been through this, um, traumatic experience and all the suffering that went along with it, I actually would honestly say that I'm less afraid now than I was before. I think I see something and understand something um, that I haven't really been able to put into words yet, but um, I am less afraid. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for asking. Um, speaking of going through difficult times, one of the book, other books you write about is Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which when I first read it, I actually enjoyed it very much. Most other people that I talk to, they read it and they say, what is this guy talking about? You know, there's, there's no hope there. But you actually take the other side of it and say that it's a, an example of hope. So how, how might the road be an example of, or not, not of hope, but of goodness, sorry, of goodness? Yeah, well, it, there's both hope and goodness in it. And, and um, 
yeah, the road, for anyone who's not familiar, is about as hopeless a world as you could imagine. It's a post-apocalyptic world where there are a few people left, and many of the people who are left are pretty horrible uh, and do horrible things. And it centers on this man and his boy, his son, um, on the road, traveling to a warmer, safer place, and all the obstacles that they encounter. Um, and it's a very desolate, despairing land, and yet... Um, I think this world demonstrates goodness and hope because even with everything stripped away and all comfort and all safety, the love that this man has for his boy and the diligence he displays in moving forward and protecting him, um, it just exemplifies what hope is. I mean, the definition that I use of hope um, that comes from Aquinas uh, is that hope regards a future good that is possible but difficult to obtain. Um, and boy, a, a world like that could not offer any more opportunity to exercise and practice that virtue than this one. Um, and yet I think seeing how hope operates in that kind of world in such stark terms can help us see how it can operate in our world and how we can practice hope by by focusing on those, even those rare moments of goodness in our lives, because th- this man and boy, they do see goodness. And every th- little good thing, whether it's a can of soda or a waterfall or a good night's sleep or an extra can of food, um, in their circumstances, it is so much better because it's so rare. Um, and they persevere and, and they, um, their hope allows them to continue on and to preserve, um, you know, what it ends up the boy's life is preserved, which was the, the, the goal of the, of the father all along. Uh, you've mentioned uh, Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas uh, a couple of times so far. How, apart from definitions, how much did they influence the, influence the uh, shape or structure of your book? Well, um, the shape or structure, I mean, each of them talk, well, more so Aquinas and um, Aristotle. They, they, they talk a lot about each virtue, um, you know, in, in separate essays and so forth. Um, and Augustine sort of tends to weave what he says about virtue throughout his work. And so I would say that it was really just the, the list of virtues, the different lists that I drew from that structured the work. And... Um, I think I just, you know, I just wove their definitions in and out as they seem to make sense. So there isn't really a rhyme or reason about, you know, how I use Aristotle or Aquinas or Augustine okay. uh, throughout the book. Um, and that, you know, maybe that's, that's frustrating for some reasons. Um, I'm not a philosopher. Um, I'm just a lay person who was reading them and trying to apply them to these works of literature and um and bring them back to life. Bring that you know. I'm I'm not a scholar in this area, but I think we can all learn and apply what they had to teach us. And and I hope that I modeled that in the book. One of the more difficult chapters for me reading through it was the chapter on chastity. Uh, why might chastity be misunderstood in in our society today, or why might it be a difficult virtue to attain? Well, it's, you know, I think it was C.S. Lewis I mentioned who says that's the most unpopular of all the virtues, and uh, I think that remains true today. Um, and I think, you know, 
we don't even really talk about chastity. We often talk about sexual abstinence or purity. Um, but these are things, you know, chastity is much fuller and more robust than that. I mean, every person, every believer is called to chastity. I mean, the married person is called to chastity. The unmarried person is called to chastity. And I think if we, um, because chastity just really means faithfulness, you know, um, being sexually faithful in whatever circumstances that we are in. And we're all in that together. And in today's culture, um, you know, in the church, especially people are either married or single, and we don't think about us carrying the same burden to fa- of faithfulness together. And of course, that the world scoffs at this kind of idea uh, of being faithful um, sexually. So it certainly is a difficult virtue to understand, I think, from from both a secular and a Christian perspective. Um, and the other aspect is that we tend to talk about it mainly in terms of women's sexuality and their obligation to be sexually pure. Um, and we, I think we still have that double standard, which makes it difficult, not just for women, but for men too, because we have this different expectation um, for, for each, when really, again, it is a burden that we all share together and a, and a virtue we should all be practicing regardless of what our situation is. And so the novel that I chose to discuss this virtue um, is Ethan Frome, and it, so it centers on the lack of chastity in a, a, a man, and it also is about chastity, even though as far as the novel reveals, um, there was no consummation of this illicit relationship, um, yet things turned out pretty badly uh, because chastity is not just about um the sex organs, chastity is about what happens in our minds and our spirit and um, and controlling all of our lust, not just sexual lust, but lust of the eyes, um, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life that the Bible talks about. All of those things play into our ability to be truly chaste in every sense of the word. Okay. Elsewhere, you, you mentioned diligence as being the most boring virtue. And I know as, as a teacher, I, of, I often get that with, with my students, you know, being diligent. Like, well, I don't want to do this. But, um, you know, they, they see diligence as being something dull or being boring, something like that. Why, why might the opposite be true? What, what is diligence's role for the Christian life? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, diligence, I think, is very closely connected to perseverance, which is, um, you know, something that all Christians are called to, you know, we will demonstrate our faithfulness through our, the perseverance of the saints through remaining faithful. Um, and diligence shows us what, what that can be like in, in just everyday life. I, I think we're surrounded by images of people and role models who are like overnight successes, who just did something in a flash and, and, and they, they achieved this great success overnight. When most of the time and most success, even uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in, in his research and his book Outlier, um, really most successful people are successful because they put in the time every day, practicing, you know, putting the hours in, just plugging away. That's really what most of life's success is about, um, but we just don't have a lot of images of that, that that reveal that reality to us. And so I think diligence sounds boring, but boy, it is the it is the virtue that I think really will bring bring us about 
you know, the most successful, the best life, um, because that's what practicing is virtue is all about is being diligent um, to the point that eventually it becomes like second nature. And we actually don't even realize that we're that we're practicing anymore. It becomes part of our character. Well, as we're approaching the the end of our time here, we do like to give our guests the last word. So is there a final a final thought you might like to leave us with today? Well, I would just want to encourage um, people. I want to say again that that this book I wrote this book for people who already love reading and feel confident in reading, but I also wrote it for people who perhaps feel intimidated by great literature and don't get it or don't think that they can read it. Um, and you can just pick it up. The introduction is tips on how to read well and why we should read well. And then the rest of the chapters, you know, you can read them in order or skip around um, and read whichever ones that you like. And um, I really just hope that it it will speak to people who um, maybe want to read more and don't know where to begin. That's that's my hope, and that's what I want to. I hope that people listening to this will be encouraged to do that. Thank you for downloading and listening in. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Jay Eldred reminding you to go in grace, go in peace, and serve the Lord.